Well, good morning, church. Welcome on in. If you will, if you're grabbing coffee, come on in. There's plenty of room. Hey, would you stand with us this morning as we sing about a king who loves us? He's where our hope is found, and his name is Jesus. So church, would you join with me in singing this truth? In Christ alone is where our hope is. Let's sing. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my, my strength. My song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in love of Christ. Till 
have a seat this morning. Our mission here at Loving Choices is we're here to offer hope to girls that find themselves in crisis pregnancy. These girls come in here and they're hopeless and they don't know where to turn and we're, we're giving them hope. And that's probably the favorite, my favorite part is I love helping someone in crisis find hope in Jesus and find hope in um, their situation. We've had girls as young as 12 here and as old as 51 here. So we will service all ages. And it doesn't even have to be a crisis as in they're considering having an abortion. It can be financial crisis. It can be, I don't have insurance. I just don't know what to, where to turn. I'm new in the area. We just want to be there to connect them with what they need. So we have a medical room. This is where they meet with a nurse and they go in and they have um, ultrasounds. So this is where they get to hear their own baby's heartbeat. We also do STD testing in there. We have men's counseling where the men get to meet with a guy because I've met with the men before and they sit there and say, Yo, you're my mom, quit talking to me. <laughs> so the guy on guy, it's just really awesome. And so they do the same thing we do in these rooms and they just meet with them. We have a um, two rooms that are on the other side. These are our care centers. This is where the girls are going to watch videos, meet with their mentor and find out everything they need to know about being a good mom and what they need to do. And then we have our boutique. The boutique is girls love. They've earned mommy bucks and the guys have earned daddy bucks in the rooms while they're um, do watching videos, doing Bible studies, anything that they do outside to help better themselves. We give them mommy bucks for it and they spend it in the boutique on diapers, wipes, toiletries, baby clothes, whatever they need for baby. Loving Choices is offering hope, empowering families, and bringing life. We're here no matter where their circumstances are, what brought them here, uh, we wanna love them where they're at. And that's the one thing that I train all my volunteers. You have to love them where they're at. Whatever situation they're in, you've got to love them there. And that's where we start. We hope to bring them on the other side to a place of hope and and being able to flourish in what they're doing. But when they come in, we're gonna meet them wherever they're at. No judgment here. And yes, if you did not get your baby bottle last week, you can get one back here in the foyer um, when you leave the church service today. We um, are a pro-life church. We want to um, come alongside Loving Choices Ministry, fill those bottles full of coins, coin shortage, you could do bills, you can do a check to Loving Choices, and if you are watching um, online, you can actually mail a check to the church uh, made out to Loving Choices. So, good morning. It is October, and it's good to see you here this morning. I want to bring your attention to the QR reader for um, All Things Fellowship News. want to tell you one thing on there will be about next week um, across the hallway in the Family Center at 9.30. We will have our launch of our legacy ministry. That is for seasoned, um, let's see. No, mature believers in the season of life, we'd love to connect you through um, devotionals, song. Um, I hear Robert Cup's going to be there. If you know him, you love him. Um, we just want to invite you to not miss that next week. I also want to share with you about something that happened last weekend all over Northwest Arkansas. We had our women's porch retreat, about 225 ladies, we've got pictures up here for you to, to see, um, that met on porches uh, to, to get in the word and connect and um, then went home, came back Saturday morning right here for more of that, including a, a, just a beautiful time of worship. And um, we had one lady, she posted on social media a picture of a Kleenex box, and she said, didn't know I was going to need these. Um, I was ready to meet with women 
who shared and, and were vulnerable. And it just reminds me, that's what we do here at Fellowship. Tell your story, share your faith. And uh, that is what we are hoping will continue in the hearts of our women as they take that weekend into consideration and just, you know, pray through what the Lord spoke to them. Um, wanted to share that with you. And now I just want to take a moment to pray a prayer over you before we move into our worship time. Uh, from the book Mark Schatzman mentioned last week, he mentioned four. This is a diary of private prayer. And um, it's a really great prayer. So if we could just bow our heads. Eternal God, you have been the hope and joy of many generations, and in all ages, you have given women and men the power to seek you, and in seeking, find you. Grant us, I pray, a clearer vision of your truth, a greater faith in your power, and a more confident assurance of your love which follows us every day of our lives. Thank you for sending your spirit to fill our hearts for all love and goodness that speaks to us of you and for the fullness of your glory poured out in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful prayer to pray this morning. Church, would you stand again as we sing, lift our voice together corporately as the church. Sing this together.
Christ would be our foundation, be where we look in times of trouble and need.
trust and hope, a firm foundation of the word of God. This morning we get to sing about that. Jesus, would you help us to trust your word that it's true and good. Help us to understand and know.
out your voice and sing this with me. Help us to see you as holy and good. And if we've walked in this place, Father, with our hearts calloused or hardened, would your spirit begin to soften? Would your spirit move amongst us and work in our hearts, our minds, and our souls as we hear from your word today, Jesus. Help us to not leave this room the same, but to leave this room transformed for the sake of the world, but more importantly, for the sake of relationship with you, Jesus. We love you. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, in the beginning, God created man in his image from the dust of the earth. He placed the man in the garden and gave him an assignment. He was to work the garden and take care of it. And God provided food for the man and gave him one prohibition. He was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Adam, mankind had its founder. With Adam, generation 1.0 of humanity was up and running. Adam was given purpose. He had provisions and he had protocols. The story is told in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, God made a statement about the quality or the condition of the founding class of humanity. He said it's not good. It is not good for man to be alone. The man had a job. He had purpose. He had provisions. He had protocols, but he was deficient. He was incomplete. He was in Need. He had need of skills that he didn't have in his toolbox. He needed perspective that he could not attain. He needed discernment that was outside of his grasp. He needed a partner. He needed a companion. He needed a teammate, someone to collaborate with, someone who was distinct from him. And the rest of Genesis chapter 2 gives an account of God's answer to the incomplete condition of humanity at this point in its development. In answer to man's need or his deficiency, God created woman. He made a helper suitable for him. She came from Adam's side. And she too was created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And she was given the assignment to fill and rule and subdue the earth right alongside of Adam. She was similar but very different. She was equal yet distinct. And without her, humanity was incomplete. And it was true in the garden and it's still true today. That without our sisters, wives, daughters, and mothers, we are incomplete in the home and in the marketplace, and in society. And it's true of the church as well. 
When it comes to church ministry, it is not good for man to be alone. We are better. We are more effective. We are further reaching as a ministry because of the contributions of our sisters, mothers, and daughters in Christ. And I learned it early on in the ministry. The year was 1994. Cell phones had yet to be invented. And I was four months into being the interim youth pastor here at Fellowship. That word interim means in Hebrew, we don't think he will make it. (laughs) I was partnered with a couple of other 22-year-old male interns, and we were doing all the ministry we could do. We had recruited a team of volunteer leaders, and we were leading student ministry worship services, and we had launched cell groups, which are our home group Bible studies for student ministries. We were hanging out on junior high and high school campuses and hosting youth ministry events. And we realized something very quickly, that this picture was incomplete. We were missing a key component on our team. We recognized that we were not properly resourced to get the job done. What were we missing? Female ministry leadership. We were an all-male student ministry team, yet our student ministry was over 60% female. We had male staff guys trying to relate to teenage girls and female volunteer leaders, and there was a huge gap of understanding and ability. We didn't have a female voice or perspective on our team, so I went to my boss at the time, Dr. Robert V. Cup, and I told him, if we want to be successful as a student ministry team, we have to hire female staff. We need women in ministry leadership. So we discussed and prayed and strategize, and eventually we hired a young lady to join our student ministry staff, and we put her to work. She co-labored alongside of us. She led girls to Jesus. She discipled and mentored and counseled. She visited high schools and junior highs and led uh, mission trips, and instead of just having our male staff going to football and baseball and basketball games, we had female staff going to volleyball games and cheer and dance competitions and softball games. We had a discipleship movement emerge. It was a huge win. It was so successful, we added a second girl for Washington County. And eventually, we hired four ladies, one for each of the four towns in northwest Arkansas. And we've had some legendary leaders lead in that FSM ladies role, like Carrie Archer and Wendy Hall and Aaron Wilkins. And of course, our current three staff ladies, Amy Anderson, Abby Lay, and Tori Tutt. Now, the lesson that I learned in student ministry has been my experience in other areas of ministry here at Fellowship. We strongly value the ministry contribution of women at our church, and not just in the children's department, but across our adult and student ministry teams as well. We've seen women thrive in ministry, whether in a staff role or a volunteer role here at Fellowship, and they've completed our team. Every week, I get to work with phenomenal women in ministry on staff and in our volunteer team. At Fellowship, we minister together. We do evangelism and discipleship and counseling and care together. Now, this seems like normalized behavior here at Fellowship, even though it's something we have grown into and are growing into over the years. But it's actually atypical within the church at large. Some might even say controversial. Well, why is that? Why is it delicate, even touchy, 
or sometimes divisive to empower a woman to exercise her God-given, spirit-empowered gifts in ministry. Well, that's what our passage is going to talk about today. We're continuing in our study of the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. And we find ourselves in the second half of chapter 2, which will address the role of women in the church. The, the passage is actually about order in public worship, and it raises three issues, one for men and two for women, but it's the role of women in the church that will dominate the thought. Now, if you did your inductive Bible study, as prescribed in your First Timothy study guide, I think one of our key observations for the week is repetition. The most repeated word in our passage this week is the word woman or women. It's repeated six times in eight verses. It's very obvious that this passage is dealing with the role of women in the church. Now, when it comes to women in the church or the role of women in God's story, the scriptures present as a whole a dichotomy of thought. First, it portrays them in key roles and moments, affirming them and elevating them, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, or the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, all women, or Christ's all-woman support team in Luke chapter 8, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, or Phoebe, the deacon in Romans 16, or Priscilla, who taught Apollos in Acts 18. And at the same time that the Bible elevates women in key moments and key roles, it also offers a divine order that distinguishes ministry roles from their male counterparts in the home and in the church. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. In fact, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 15. 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Let me read the passage to you. It says, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. Now this passage is one of the most difficult in all of the, the New Testament. I can actually sense some of you praying for me and some of you uh, feeling sorry for me this morning. But I never mind teaching the scriptures as they're written. This passage also often raises many questions. Like what does he mean by women should be quiet? Or that they should not wear gold jewelry or have an elaborate hairstyle? And is he blaming Eve for sin entering the world? Or how can childbearing save a woman? And not only are there some difficult or confusing concepts in the passage, the language can be received as harsh or tone deaf in a modern world, especially to those outside of the church. 
For some, this passage has been a source of misunderstanding or disagreement, and for some, even hurt. So we're gonna talk this morning about roles of women in the church, but before we do, let me make some opening remarks. This passage is God-breathed. It's inerrant, it's infallible, and it's authoritative. Therefore, it's useful for both the church and the individual. Secondly, the topic of women's and men's roles in the church is sensitive and delicate. It has the potential to hurt or divide, so we need the grace and the mercy of God this morning. You know, I think in some measure, the church as a whole over its history has gotten some things wrong on this. We've limited the, the contribution of women beyond what the scriptures teach. We've restricted the voice of females in the faith. We've made inappropriate jokes about this passage or others. We've made some of our sisters in Christ feel inferior or less important. And for that, we need to ask our sisters for forgiveness. Also, I want to point out that it's okay to struggle. It is permissible to process or question or wrestle. If you're a woman or a male who's ever struggled with a passage like this or passages that deal with biblical roles in the church and the home, I want you to know that it's okay. It's okay to process. It's okay to ask questions. And then lastly, I'll say this. We may not all agree. This issue we're dealing with today is not a matter of orthodoxy or heresy. Your position on this passage does not determine whether you're in the faith or out of the faith. There's room to disagree. And in fact, there are different positions on this passage across Christianity. But we as a church have a position on the passage. I'll teach it and we'll seek to apply it effectively. So before we begin, I think it would be wise to pray. Would you join me? Well, Lord God, we pray for mercy and grace this morning. Lord, we pray for your spirit who authored this text to give us clarity and understanding on how to apply it in life and in ministry. And Lord, I pray as a result of our teaching for your kingdom to be built and for unity to be built. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to work through the passage verse by verse. But before we do, let me remind you of the context of this passage. This letter of 1 Timothy is called a pastoral epistle. The heart of this letter is to challenge Timothy to pursue his ministry calling and to instruct him on to work out some church affairs. And that's what we're going to see today. The passage is instructing Timothy about roles and functions in the church. Let's take a look at the first verse, chapter two, verse eight. It says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Chapter two is gonna offer instructions on three topics under the banner of public worship. Prayer, modesty, and authority. And what we'll see in the passage is there will be specific instructions for both men and women, the passage will offer some encouragements as well as some restrictions. And each section is going to give a principle and a practice. The passage begins with the men. Their instruction concerned prayer. We covered most of this section last week, but we're picking up verse 8 again this week. The verse calls for the men to pray. They're instructed to lead out in prayer during public worship. 
They're to engage publicly in intercession. And there is a prescribed posture of prayer. The men are to lift up holy hands in prayer. This outward form was to be an expression of their inward demeanor, meaning that they should come to the prayer altar with a clean conscience and a reverent heart. It would do no good to take a a posture of lifting holy hands physically without the corresponding heart condition. And Paul offers a restriction to the men as well. The men should avoid things that hinder prayer, namely anger and quarreling. They should not be argumentative in public worship. This would be counterproductive, don't you think? Remember that there are disputes that were going on in this first century church about doctrine. False teachers had arisen from within and they were leading people astray. And maybe those disputes were spilling over into the public times of worship and prayer. Note here, there is a principle and a practice. The principle is prayer. The practice is a posture. Pray while lifting holy hands. Now think with me. Do you believe or hold to the fact that the church is called to pray? How many of you would agree with that? The church is called to pray. Please say yes. All right, all right. How many of you pray with lifted holy hands? Maybe occasionally? Do you pray every time lifting holy hands as prescribed here? I want you to note this because this will be a key thought and interpretive distinguishment to help understand some things in this passage that the principles are absolutely timeless while the practices are held on to loosely in our day. So so next, he's going to offer one of two instructions to the women. Look at verses nine and 10. They are called to modesty while attending public worship. He writes, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. This is an encouragement for the women to come to worship God, but also a reminder to dress modestly when they do. When the women come to worship, their outward appearance should reflect their inward character. Their dress should not draw away the eyes of their fellow worshipers. Their attire should not turn heads, whether for its elegance or its suggestiveness. And apparently in Timothy's first century church context, this was a concern. Remember that the church that Timothy was leading was in Ephesus, which was both a leading Roman city and the home of Artemis worship, both of which prescribed a style of adornment for the women that let everyone know what they were all about. And he's saying that the women who profess to worship Christ should be distinct from both the temple prostitutes of Artemis worship and the members of the upper class of the Roman elite society. The passage simply reminds us that modesty is a good thing. The church aisle is not a fashion runway. Our Sunday morning services should not be an episode of who wore it better. And it certainly should not be a place to be racy or provocative. Our time of worship together has a singular focus, and that's exalting Jesus, and all eyes should be where? Again, there's a principle and a practice here. The principle is modesty, which all churches universally would hold to as a part of the faith. Jesus' followers should be modest people. 
But then there's also a practice. The practice here mentions certain kinds of jewelry and hairstyles and expensive clothes. The principle is timeless while it seems the practice is timely. We don't have a spending limit on your dresses. We didn't check for gold or pearls at the door, did we? So you see, we're holding to the principle, we're loosely holding to the practice. The main point here is that inner beauty is more important than outward adornment. That a prepared heart is more important than a pampered appearance. A godly heart over glamorous attire. These verses are the exact opposite of the cultural proposition that if you've got it, flaunt it. Now, even though the instruction for modesty is directed at the women, the passage is not blaming them alone for the distractful or lustful eyes of their male counterparts. Men have a role to play in our pursuit of purity. Men We're called to practice self-discipline and self-control with our eyes and our thoughts. And we have to take responsibility for our personal holiness. Amen? Now you may think, really? Is, Is this what we're talking about? What people should wear to church? Well, Believe it or not, this is actually an issue still today. It's even an issue at our church. I will get several calls and emails this year about adornment. Some don't come to church because they don't feel like they have the right clothes to wear. They're ashamed. Some don't come to our church because they feel like we're too casual in our dress. Some complain about women dressing inappropriately, showing too much skin or wearing too tight fitting of clothing. Others complain about the men, how they need to be more reverent in their dress, how they shouldn't wear hats or especially cargo shorts, or how they look like they rolled out of the rack wearing a shirt that came off the bed of their truck. Still others are obsessed about how our pastors dress. Seriously, whether we should or shouldn't wear jeans, or why we don't wear coats and ties, or why we can't be more hip or cool. If you're waiting for me to wear skinny jeans and preach in a low-cut V with some Jordans, forget it! I'm not wearing Jordans! I get my shoes at Dillard's when they're on sale. (laughs) Here's what it reminds me. It actually is true. It actually is true. How we adorn ourselves for public worship can distract others and their worship. Our eyes need to be where? Upward. Focus on Jesus, not on a fellow worshiper. So the passage has addressed prayer to the men, then modesty to the women. Next, the principle is authority. Look at verse 11. A woman should, not, should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. First, note the primary command of the verse in verse 11. In the Greek, there's only one imperative here, and it's an encouragement. You find it in the first four words of verse 11. A woman should what? Learn. It's an encouragement for women to grow in their knowledge of God and the Scriptures. And in the first century in Ephesus, this was actually a radical and countercultural call. Women were not allowed to learn in other venues like the synagogue or the academy. Here, Paul begins with a countercultural calling, encouraging the women to be fellow learners in the church. It was an invitation to his sisters in Christ to participate in the spiritual formation and growth and discipleship of following Jesus at the church. And then it offers a prescribed posture. For learning, in quietness 
and full submission. And submission is the posture of a learner. We come under another's influence, student to teacher, follower to mentor. Paul called for a learning posture of submission. Now that word quietness does not mean silence or not speaking at church. This isn't saying that women can't talk during church worship. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 11, verses 3 to 5, he actually encourages women to speak at church. Let me read it to you. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's the divine order. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. We're not going to deal with head coverings here. We'll save that for a special day. But listen to this. He encourages the men to pray and prophesy. Look at verse 5. But every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. You see here Paul encouraging both genders, male and female, to speak at church, to pray and prophesy. So silence, as in not speaking at church, is not the meaning of the instruction. So what is Paul getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 11, when he calls for silence and submission. Well, it means to be deferential and cooperative. The Greek word used here can be translated as silent, or it can be translated as a non-disruptive demeanor. And this is actually the second time this word has been used in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. If you'll scroll up and look at verse 2, it calls for the whole church, both men and and women to lead peaceful and quiet lives, meaning live with a non-disruptive demeanor. And because the theme of this section of the letter is authority in the church, it seems that Paul is calling not for physical silence, but for the women to refrain from being unruly or disruptive or domineering, just like he just called for who? The men not to argue or quarrel during the worship service. He's not hitting the mute button on the females in the room. Imagine it like this. A school teacher walks into a room of disruptive students. And the teacher says, all right, all right. Quiet down now. We're going to start the lesson. He's actually, or she is not saying, no one can talk for the rest of the hour. He's calling for them to be peaceful and learning, not for the disruption to end. It's not that the women should never speak, but they should not commandeer the place of the speaker. Quietness was an expression of submission. So the men are not to argue in prayer. The women are to be modest and to be peaceful in learning. Note again, there is both a principle and a practice. The principle is authority. The cultural practice was quietness. Now this command to learn in submission and quietness actually pairs with the principle found in verse 12 of authority, where the apostle says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Verse 11 is an encouragement to learn. Verse 12 offers a restriction. Paul prohibits a woman to teach or have authority in the church. This verse describes the divine order of male headship or leadership in the church. It's not prohibiting women from teaching anywhere, but is a prohibition of a woman holding that authoritative position in the church of teacher-elder, of deciding doctrine. It's affirming male leadership in the church. Now, when you zoom out on chapter 2, you really see some 
symmetry in the instructions on public worship. You'll find that there are three principles and three timely applications or practices. When I look at the list, I observe that the principles seem timeless, while the practices seem timely. Prayer, modesty, and authority are concepts the church wholly pursues to this day universally, while lifting holy hands or Specific types of jewelry or quietness seem to be optional applications. The principles are prescriptive for us and all, while the applications are descriptive of Timothy's first century context. And we seem to have consensus there within the faith. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there is some disagreement about this passage within Orthodox Christianity. And really, there are two primary views held on biblical manhood and womanhood in the church today. The complementarian view and the egalitarian view. And your interpretation of today's passage that we're studying is typically driven by which of these two theological camps that you fall in. Let me give you a brief overview of each. First, the complementarians. Complementarians view the personhood of both male and female to be equal. Both created in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. Both having dignity and value, both being one in Christ. There being neither male nor female, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Both fully experiencing the love of God and receiving the spiritual gifts from God and being assigned the great commission and the, the, to share the gospel. Yet they make a distinction in their roles. Complementarians believe that the scriptures teach that we have a difference in what we are assigned to do in the church and the home. All are called to grow, lead, and serve, to deploy their spiritual gifts, to fulfill God's commandments. But the men are called to lead and to take the role of elder and teacher in the church. This is the divine order. I taught you the passage today from a complementarian view. Now, some would say that having a difference in role would mean that we have a different value in our personhood. That the leadership role comes with greater personal value or worth. And a complementarian would disagree. We believe that it is possible to have both equal value of personhood and differing roles at the same time. I don't think a parent has a greater value as a person than their child. Or that a manager has greater personal dignity or worth than their employees. Or a principal at a school has greater value or dignity than a teacher they lead. We also see this in the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in personhood. Each is fully God, possessing fully all of the attributes, yet they are distinct in their role. We call that the economy of the Trinity. The Father sent the Son. The Son submits to and obeys the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Fellowship holds a complementarian view of biblical manhood and womanhood. We have a high view of our sisters and mothers and daughters in Christ, but we see a distinction in the roles called upon for us in the home and the church. Let me share with you my personal experience. I was raised by a single mom and a widowed grandmother. I didn't have any men in my life. So growing up, my heroes were these Two hardworking women who sacrificed everything to see me and my brothers succeed in life. 
And if you know me very well, you know that I'm married to a woman who is much smarter than me, who's more talented than me, and to be really radical is a better preacher than me. I'm father to a daughter who is very smart and an incredible leader and father-in-law to Allie, who is an incredibly smart and gifted leader as well. So I hold to this high view of women. And then when I leave my home, I drive to this office and I work alongside a phenomenal group of women on staff and leadership and volunteer leaders in our ministry. Yet at the same time, without lessening any of those feelings, which I feel with all my heart, I believe the scriptures teach a prescribed difference in our callings and roles in the church and the home. There's equal value yet distinction in role. The authoritative role of leadership in the church and the home is assigned to qualified males. Note that not all males are authorities in the church, only those qualified and appointed. And we're going to get into that next week. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is about the role of elder and deacon. Those placed in authority in the church must meet those godly requirements as revealed in the scriptures. So let's talk about authority and the scriptures. Our culture defines authority as being equal to power. If you have authority, you have power. Power to make decisions. You have elevated value. Power to get your way. And if you don't have authority, then you're oppressed. You have to do what other people say or decide. And you have less dignity or value. And the Bible just doesn't define authority that way. In fact, Look at what Jesus said about authority in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when men are assigned the leadership role, when we speak of male headship in the church, it's not privilege, it's not power. It's sacrificial servant leadership. It's assuming responsibility, not receiving privilege. It's role, not rank. In Ephesians 5, there is a call for wives to submit to their husbands. And then it describes how the husbands ought to lead. And it says, husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself for her. I love this quote from Brian Chapel. He said, church leadership is not about power, it's about dying. It should be selfless, not self-centered. Serving others, not being served. Self-sacrificing, not self-promoting. Biblical authority is not about force. It's not about clout. It's not about dominance. It's about sacrificing and serving and giving for the good of others. It's emptying of oneself, not elevating oneself. And good complementarian theology must properly define what spiritual leadership looks like. And as I read it, it looks a lot more like a cross than it does a crown. Amen? So what about the egalitarians? What is their view? Well, the egalitarians would agree that we're created 
equally before the Lord. In the Imago Dei, Genesis 1:27, male and female created in the image of God. We're equal in dignity and value. All are one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Both fully experience the love of God and the gifting of this, uh, the, the Holy Spirit and they're assigned to the Great Commission and to share the gospel. But they believe that there is no distinction in role in the home or the church, that all offices or functions in church leadership are open to both women as well as men, including the office of teaching pastor and elder. So how does an egalitarian interpret the passage we studied today? Well, let me offer some differing views. One view would be that Paul is just wrong, that he's a chauvinist, that he's caught up in his first century culture, which was a male-dominating culture over women. A second option would be that this is a cultural application that is meant to be left in first century Ephesus, and many hold to that. A third would be that this is just Paul's opinion. He actually says in there, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority, and some take that as this is not from the Lord, it's just from Paul. A fourth option would be that Galatians 3 verse 28 counters this passage, leaving it obsolete when it says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you all are one in Christ. Now, while I can see how some would come to a few of these conclusions, here's the deal. We're not done with the passage yet. And it's in the next two verses that Paul actually reveals his reasoning for his call for male-female role distinction within the church. Look at verses 13 and 14, and you'll see Paul's answer to the why question. Why did Paul not permit a woman to be in a position of church authority? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Paul supports or proves his point of male leadership from creation, not culture. He goes back to Genesis, the blueprint chapters of the Bible. Why is the leadership role in the church assigned to males? It's by God's design from the creator, according to the apostle. And by the way, in your inductive Bible study, we begin by looking at the passage using the six fundamental questions, who, what, why, when, where, and how, Verses 13 and 14 are the answer to the why question. Why did Paul call for male headship? Creation order. God's design. Adam being created first was a signal from the Old Testament. The firstborn son being viewed as the leader. Genesis also describes Eve as his helpmate. And Adam even names her at the end of chapter 3. And in verse 14, he retells what happens when the divine order is not followed. We get the sin story. The divine order was upended. Satan replaced God, telling them what to do. Eve replaced Adam, leading in the relationship. And Adam failed to lead in his passivity. Sin entered the world, and along with it, chaos. Paul first defined the roles, then he offered a case study from the garden of what happens when the divine order is not followed. And by the way, whom did God hold accountable for sin entering the world? Who did he question first? Adam. 
the leader. Bible commentator John Stott said this about Paul's reference to Genesis in support of his point on authority. He said, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship must be pronounced unsuccessful. It is rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. Now, the last verse in this passage is very perplexing. It's still on topic, addressing women and the faith, but let's try to tackle it, and then we'll get you all on to lunch. But the women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, what is he getting at here? I'll give you four interpretive options. One, he's saying that no woman will die in childbirth. Secondly, that women receive salvation. You go to heaven by childbirth. C, women are saved because of the birth of the child, meaning Jesus. D, women find significance through motherhood. Now, you can obviously eliminate A and B. We won't go there. And while some might find D acceptable and even preferable, I really can't get away from option C. And the way it plays out in my mind is that women actually play an incredibly significant role in God's story because we are all saved by the birth of the child. Through the womb of a woman came the Savior of mankind. What happened in Eden was reversed in Bethlehem. The babe in the manger would become the man on the cross. Perhaps you've seen this picture. It features two prominent women in the scriptures, Eve and Mary. And look at Eve in shame with the serpent wrapped around her leg. And look where her hand is. It's on the womb of Mary. And in that womb is the Savior, the one born in Bethlehem, who would save her soul, saved by the birth of the child. What a significant role women play in the story of God. Let me close with this, what this passage is not saying. It is not saying that men are superior to women. This passage is about roles, not personhood. It's also not saying that women in general should submit to men in general. This is not addressing women in leadership in, in the marketplace or the academy or the public square or the courthouse. This is about roles in the church. It's not saying that women are weak or gullible or that women should not speak in church or that they cannot teach the Bible or they cannot be in ministry or that men cannot learn from women. Tonight I'll go to a community group and I will learn from my sisters in Christ. What this is saying, that the role of pastoral leadership of the whole church is the responsibility of qualified men. We'll get into it next week. That the official teaching ministry of the church, of deciding doctrine, is the responsibility of qualified men. We'll summarize it with this, that the divine order leads to proper worship of the divine. God has revealed a divine order for life in the church. God's created order is wise and effective, even though it may be difficult for some to grasp. We seek as a church to follow his word and his game plan. The divine order should build up both men and women. It should unify the church. It should advance the kingdom. It should promote the gospel. It should be a thing of beauty and not of conflict. I believe 
that it is not good in the church for man to be alone. Amen? We're better. We're more effective. We're further reaching as a ministry when we link arms with our sisters, mothers, and daughters in Christ. And at Fellowship, we're a complementary church. We believe in both the equality of personhood and distinction in roles. We deeply value our sisters in Christ and we want to maximize the ministry contribution of all while upholding the design of God as revealed in his scriptures. And to God be the glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, this is your word. And Lord, this is a sensitive topic. So today I pray for unity in our body. And Lord, I pray for our sisters and daughters and mothers in the room to feel honored at their uniqueness and their significance in your story. And I pray for us as a church that we could work out the divine order in an effective way in 2021. Oh, we love you, Lord, and we want you to get all the glory in the name of Jesus Amen. Hey, thanks for coming today, Fellowship. If you need prayer, prayer room is open. Don't forget to pick up your Loving Choices baby bottle on the way out and bring it back next week. We love you guys.